0: I'm Neil Wilkins and welcome to the Mindful Living Show. Okay, so I'm joined uh, here today by Professor Martin Parker from uh, Bristol University and uh, Martin has a very interesting uh, I guess role and uh, perspective uh, from the university because he is the lead for the Bristol Inclusive Economy Initiative and that's something I want to, uh, to delve into uh, in quite some detail uh, today here with you Martin. Can you, can you give a little bit of an introduction to yourself and kind of what's brought you into that role?
1: Yes of course, uh, well I'm a, I'm a career academic, my background is in sociology and anthropology and cultural studies but for the last yeah, 20 years or so now, I've been working in schools of business and management, but um, generally pretty critical of what those um, schools are doing in terms of their education and research and so on. So in some senses, I've, I've spent the last two decades just enthusiastically biting the hand that feeds me, um, while still being paid, of course, the accusations of hypocrisy are clear. Um, but this, when I moved to Bristol a couple of years ago, um, I'd written a series of things which were fairly critical of what business schools were doing, but then kind of wanted to think about how we could actually do something useful. So um, about 18 months ago now, I repurposed an existing research unit into this thing called the Inclusive Economy Initiative, which is an attempt to to glue together uh, the University of Bristol and the city region. Um, particularly focusing on some of the issues around business practice
0: it's a really interesting concept which I guess has a kind of a playoff in a a whole um, sort of like national debate really about how you kind of meld and um, sort of join and integrate the more sort of academic Mm. kind of approach with a commercial um, spin. And I think certainly from my experience, kind of more and more, I'm seeing this kind of blending of the two worlds sort of coming together because each has, I guess you could sort of describe sort of complementary things to offer. But I think it's almost like there's a common purpose now.
1: It would be nice to think so. I, I don't think that's always true. I mean, remember, the academics are uh, you know, curious creatures who are easily distracted by small things. And so they tend to be quite good at focusing on tiny problems and writing articles that nobody ever reads about those tiny problems. And of course, the whole structure of the kind of um, academic uh, career hierarchy is very much based on how effective you are in publishing and uh, you know, whether other people read about the tiny problems that you 've identified that 's kind of different to the ways in which um, businesses in the real world operate and I do think there 's continual misunderstanding across those divides um, in part there' are misunderstandings about sort of about time because you know, very often academics operate on much longer time frames you know, even to to think about you know, writing a new course or something like that it usually takes us, takes us a couple of years to get it through the university bureaucracy and so on, but also that there are different kinds of incentives and motivations at play, um, and so very often even if something looks like a common problem for both people in business and, and academics, it gets understood and articulated in different kind of ways. So I think there's a real question about almost, almost like the kind of translations that take place between the university and the world of business and management. And there's, the, there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of thinking about how, how we can make academic language and business and commercial language work together more effectively, yeah, without losing the integrity of either, I think.
0: Mm, it's interesting because I think certainly from, from my perspective coming at this I guess from a more um, sort of commercial background um, Mm -hmm. very much looking at supporting you know organizations you know large and small particularly from a kind of a marketing and communications angle I I think what I'm observing and and this isn't sector specific I mean it really is you know across all sectors um, and organizations large and small is I'm seeing almost a a thirst, I guess you could call it, but certainly an appetite for kind of trying to understand how to take steps into what you might call a brave new world, new future, you know, after the current sort of challenges that everyone's Mm -hmm. facing, is kind of almost trying to look for guidance and kind of leadership. I know you identified there, you know, sort of some of the small um, sort of issues that maybe nobody else is sort of thinking about. Mm -hmm. But I'm guessing kind of tucked away in there are little kind of nuggets of gold. And it's kind of those things which I'm, I'm guessing really commercial organizations are almost seeking because you know they do have the cash flows to consider they do have you know people to but you be paying for they do have obviously products and services they need to be continually kind of bringing to market it's almost like they don't have the space and the time to be able to identify things that academics could Are, yeah. you, are you sort of seeing yeah. um, examples yeah.
1: I think there's almost two separate issues there. So one of them is about the kind of crises that we face, whether we're talking in terms of COVID or the climate crisis. And the other one is in terms of the, the sort of, um, the permeability of universities to outside interests and ideas. Yeah. So just taking the first one, then I think there is a perception that we're all facing a common crisis and that many of the you know, so it's setting aside COVID for now, but that the, the, in, in terms of, of climate climate change and so on, that many of the business people I'm talking to can no longer ignore this stuff. You know, it's not, it's not possible to um, click your heels three times and imagine you're going to be in Kansas or, you know, do it next Tuesday, whatever it is. It has to be done now. You, you don't have any choice about that. And that isn't simply about some sort of altruism or whatever. It's, it's an enlightened self-interest thing. If you want to have a business in 10, 15 years time, then you need to play your part in dealing with climate change. So so that kind of, that seems to be bringing people together in some quite unusual ways. So that bit, great. The problem, I think, still is that universities tend to see university-shaped problems in the world. And business people tend to see business-shaped problems in the world. So again, it goes back to that question of how can you construct um, the university as an institution? that is much more permeable, that's much more flexible in terms of its times and spaces, and that can both educate and research about a set of problems that are contemporary but are informed by academic stuff. After all, we don't want universities just to be, you know, glib places selling easy solutions. We should be a bunch of people who are asking hard questions, right? But at the same time, those questions seem now sometimes to have become so obscure and so, Um, decorated with complicated language, that it really puts people off from trying to engage with some of those ideas. So I think, you know, that's, I I see the enormous opportunity, the scary opportunity is kind of the climate emergency, but there's still a lot of work to be done to, yeah, to reshape universities, to make them less interested in themselves and more interested in the world that they inhabit.
0: Mm. kind of introduces the whole concept, I guess, of um, sort of co-creation. I mean, it kind of mm. sort of extends things beyond just the traditional sort the partnership so to speak where it's like you know you commission a relationship with an organization be it in education or another commercial organization to kind of solve an initial challenge or issue this feels much more collaborative much more of a community that's kind of co-creating solutions so that you're actually working to a common goal to you know identifying what the opportunity is but then literally coming together to form the solution so rather than it being almost like a consultative process It feels like it's much more collaborative. I mean, are you seeing that sort of taking place at all? Yeah, I mean,
1: that kind of language is used a lot now, isn't it? You know, the language of of Co, and there's lots of different versions of it, seems to be um, increasingly articulated as what we want to achieve, whether from the side of business or the side of the university. There's still... um, there's still a lot of questions in that co. you know, it's kind of, the, there's, there's a whole bunch of ways in which you can talk about partnership and collaboration and stuff as kind of motherhood and apple pie sort of, uh, sort of words, and this sort of idea that, you know, we're all friends and all holding hands and so on. I do think it's kind of important to recognise there's different interests at play here, and clearly when, you know, let's say uh, the Bristol University is involved in a relationship with, uh, I don't know, let's say British Telecom or someone like that, that... Um, they need to understand that both sides need to understand that there are different interests at play here you know we want some the university wants some students and some research and some money and whatever else, but bt wants something that's going to be of market advantage presumably yeah so there are and, and underneath the collaboration thing there are still interests happening and i think we need to name those sometimes otherwise it can just be a kind of a rather glib um, almost a sort of collaboration wash for all sorts of entanglements yeah
0: mm. yeah and i think that's, that's kind of really interesting because it, it's almost that i guess yeah and I, and I really like that collaboration wash concept because I, uh, and i guess with the old sort of corporate social responsibility thing that a lot of big corporates have kind of used to tick the box if you like um over the years i think now with the whole kind of transparency of the conversation and it being very much seen as you know unless you're actually doing things authentically and and in the public sort of realm it's yeah. it's kind of you almost you have to do that as a brand now so small organizations obviously because they can be a lot more fleet of foot and can make mm-hmm. things happen quickly but the big guys i guess are now in a position where you know they're having to make these engagements they're having to it's almost like they're is being forced by the current situation to be able to kind of, you know, enter these kinds of relationships because if they don't, then it's almost like they're losing kind of ground to competition or they're losing ground sort of in a, in a political sense with the, the rest of the world. I mean, are you seeing kind of examples of that happening?
1: I think I think we're living in extraordinary times. You know, the, the other co that we have mentioned, COVID is clearly stimulating all sorts of, Um, remarkable connections between organisations that are being both, you know, the state and um, institutions like universities and private sector, the private sector in general, and the third sector too, that are now being connected in all sorts of extraordinary ways that we couldn't have imagined a month ago. So clearly those kinds of collaborations are possible they're still happening of course in pretty uneven ways so you know if you're talking about collaborating with amazon well you know you're, you you know who's the who's the senior party party in the relationship and some you know very large organizations are going to come out of the covid crisis with a real market advantage i think they've kind of you know they've will demonstrated their centrality to whatever it is you know getting face masks or providing people with net netflix or zoom or whatever yeah Uh, providing people with various kind of virtual solutions. Um, Other organizations, smaller ones, more local ones, less financially uh, resilient ones, I think are gonna have a real problem. Um, So there's a sense in which, when we talk about collaborations, I think we need to be clear that that doesn't mean that all of the little fishies are gonna survive because a lot of the collaborations aren't really collaborations at all. You know, going back to the Amazon example, it's more like you become a client state of something like Amazon. Yeah. So yes, I think that we are seeing various collaborations and partnerships taking place. It's just that, again, I don't think we should be naive about the power imbalances that are already already part of that. And particularly with reference to the the climate crisis, less so the COVID crisis. But, you know, my, the Inclusive Economy Initiative is very much pushing forward ideas about localization, about a diverse, um, uh, a diverse ecosystem of, of small to medium-sized enterprises based on smaller, short, shorter supply chains, all this kind of stuff. You know, very much pushing towards uh, more inclusive and more uh, 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 carbon zero economies. Um, that's kind of the opposite direction that we're moving in at present. And what, what, what we're seeing is very large forms of organization, which are kind of compensating for the lack of resilience of communities in many ways. So I think there's a lot of politics left to be had after the COVID crisis about how we deal with the climate crisis. You know, do, do we assume that large forms of state intervention, like for example, the green new deal, you know, building forests of wind turbines and all this kind of stuff. Um, will be the solution or are we looking to more localized solutions in which you know say for example the the uh, city region of bristol could start to think about how it uh how it sources food from the region for example rather than being reliant on international supply chains yeah it's that that kind of stuff so there's i suppose what worries me in simple talk about collaboration is the idea that somehow the politics have been stripped out of it and i think they're still there
0: Mm. it's really interesting when when you start to kind of introduce this whole idea of you know the the smaller players i mean obviously we've, we've talked here a few examples of some of the big kind of multinationals and and i guess yeah. those are the ones who are taking most of the bandwidth when it comes to the media right now because yeah. obviously you get some great examples the likes of kind of morrison's and zara uh, yeah. and maybe what at the other end of the spectrum your kind of weatherspoons and sports direct who um, clearly haven't had such a good uh, press because of no decisions I slightly
1: tin-eared there
0: weren't they yes um i think uh, that one's going to be very interesting on the other side as i keep calling. Mm-hmm. It. um but coming back to the the kind of the more sort of local organizations and i guess again this has a sort of a national uh, sort of interest so we talk obviously a lot here and um, about bristol as, as the core example here Work that's happening in the city, but I think yeah. this will potentially play out right across the UK. Um, it's interesting when you start talking about sort of smaller organizations because I guess what we're kind of implying here is it's almost using the opportunity to, and I'm going to use a word that's almost become a little bit cliched um, over sort of recent years, which is pivot. But it feels that that is actually a very relevant word here because organizations who have kind of, I guess, sort of identified with a certain product or service or sector or type of customer. Mm-hmm. It feels now to kind of be part of this kind of inclusive economy um, and to really focus on the value that they're adding from, a, um, I guess, a really kind of intrinsic value that they add as an organization they're going to have to potentially be very different and actually do very different things offer very different services maybe as you talked about supply chain there maybe have very different supply chains going forward almost kind of reinventing themselves i mean do you you see that kind of happening
1: yeah i mean I, i think i think that's precisely the the dilemma we find ourselves in at the moment isn't it is that we've we've kind of assumed that um, the way that capitalism operates um, involves very little concern for externalities, whether in terms of ecological ones, so producing a variety of of problems for the natural world, or in terms of carbon emissions. And clearly, neither of those assumptions can hold anymore in any organisations. So I think we are going to have to reinvent what business looks like, and the kind of long supply chain capitalism that we've been relatively used to, and that companies like that most multinational companies necessarily trade on. You think about the number of goods that are moved between different jurisdictions in order to, um, in order to assemble the final product, or you know the fact that. We can have, I'm just making this up, but, you know, we can have, um, I don't know, avocados from Ghana in our supermarkets in February or something like that. That kind of stuff just can't continue. It really just can't continue. And that's not a moral point. It's just a kind of a practical scientific point. So obviously we're going to be looking to shorten supply chains. Now, that effectively means that many of the business models of organizations, particularly larger organizations, which have relied on complicated logistics and so on, that's why Amazon is the poster kid in all this, um, no longer have the kind of market advantage that they did. Um, Effectively, I think we are going to be looking at strategies for localizing or regionalizing economies, particularly in certain sectors, um, food being the most obvious one, but other other others other things too. There's also that kind of question about what sort of what sort of legitimacy do we want businesses to have? And I think you know, you look at any opinion poll surveys. The vast majority of ordinary citizens don't trust marketing, don't trust businesses, don't trust the. Um, the kind of promises that they're sold about the uh, the happier life that they could live if they consume in particular kinds of ways so in the global north i wonder whether those kinds of promises are now running out of steam and you know very much hope that people in part stimulated by the climate crisis are going to be thinking about different ways in which they can satisfy their various requirements and needs Uh, and consequently perhaps themselves pivoting to organisations that they regard to have more authentic credibility in those kinds of areas.
0: Mm. So an organisation, let's just take a sort of a typical example, an organisation based in one particular city, could be Bristol, Mm. could be elsewhere, um, who's starting to, I guess, kind of awaken to the opportunity here, both, you know, commercial opportunity but also doing things for the right reasons so a real kind of value and kind of purpose opportunity maybe you know because of lockdown they're starting to sort of think a little bit more strategically about you know the reason for being Mm. what would you say would be a natural kind of first few steps that they could take because i guess in this, I mean, it's very easy to sort of immerse yourself in in the conversation, read a lot of mm. stuff, and then sort of think, oh, yeah, it's all great, but actually, it's a bit too big to handle. What well, mm. kind of things naturally do you think, from a practical kind of sort of execution kind of way, do you think people would begin to sort of start those first steps with? Mm. Yeah,
1: it's really interesting, but I'm not sure you can give a general answer to all organisations. I mean, there are some sectors. Travel and tourism being a fairly obvious one, that now face some really paralyzing problems. And it becomes very difficult to imagine how we can continue to fly as much as we did, for example. Um, other sectors, and food again is a fairly obvious example, you can relatively easily think about think about strategies for localizing that stuff. You know, there's no there's no particular reason why the vast majority of the food eaten in a city. Couldn't be grown within, say, thirty or forty miles of that city. Yeah, clearly there's going to be, you know, there there will still be stuff moved around. I'm not saying that we, you know, we all have to eat food from Somerset if we live in Bristol or something like that. But I think we are going to see necessary shortening of those supply chains. Now that kind of means that the the responses to that stuff kind of depends what sort of business you're in, doesn't it? And and some of those evaluations are necessarily going to be about the. the carbon externalities that result from particular business models. So let's say transport, for example. Yeah, It's actually relatively easy to decarbonize transportation if we have an alternative energy sector that provides enough excess capacity to produce electricity for electric vehicles. At the moment, of course, that's a bit of a problem for say a bus company or a, you know some kind of haulier or something like that because those vehicles are very expensive and they require regular recharging but if you want to be ahead of the curve i would have thought it makes sense now to be planning to be shifting your fleet to all renewable power within a rel- within relatively short order you'd be pretty dumb not to be doing that But again, I don't think that's rocket science. I mean, that's just acknowledging the reality of what's going to need to change over the next decade or so, if we're going to stand a chance of limiting global warming.
0: Mm. It's a really key point, I think, because certainly what I've experienced is that any time I've kind of entered this conversation with a client or an organisation that I meet, um, often it is that commercial spin or that commercial language which enters the conversation that kind of almost is the starting point yeah so whilst there is this lovely big picture ethereal kind of no better place that we're trying to create this almost like this nirvana of um, economics in the future it's almost like the conversation starting point is yes but is there competitive advantage for me in the short term can i actually afford to do this okay if we start talking about investment rather than cost Mm-hmm. am I still going to see a return? And is it's almost like there is this new language that we're trying to form, but we still have to be, I guess, mindful of the existing language and almost like the commercial realities of survival. And mm-hmm. I guess you're seeing that certainly from your perspective as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think again, you know, there are very different organisations involved in this stuff, aren't there? So, you know, in, in my work, sometimes I'm talking to, um, Uh, let's let's say, um, a relatively small cooperative based somewhere in Bristol that's already doing some quite good things and is very conscious of its carbon emissions and everybody cycles to work and all the rest of it. And they're trying to find ways in which they can do more of that stuff, but essentially they're already on that path. So it's relatively easy for me to talk to them and have conversations about you know how can the university help you and blah, 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 that kind of stuff. On the other hand, if I'm having a conversation with, let's say, Airbus, which I have, that's a bit trickier, because obviously Airbus's operating model, and I'm not, again, I'm not being moralistic here or anything, I mean, it's just a fact, Airbus's operating model currently is carbon intensive, it's really, you know, it's difficult to get away from that, so any conversation you're going to have with them is going to necessarily have to take that stuff into account, it's no good walking in there you know, singing Kumbaya and talking about how lovely tomorrow is going to be and so on, because that's just not going to work. It's not going to have any leverage over them. The the, the really important issue, I think, is that these organisations have to see the self-interest in pivoting, to use your metaphor. If they don't, then they're unlikely to do it. They're more likely just to just to buy time, to, to imagine that their successor can do it, to, um, to, to worry about that, that tomorrow. Human beings are incredibly good at doing that, aren't they? You know, just, just pretending that it won't be our problem. But collectively, we can't, we can't do that anymore. And we can't, we can't afford to have organisations that do that anymore. The most salutary lesson is the one that Mark Carney, the ex-governor of the Bank of England, has been trying to deliver for the last two years or so which is about um, carbon-intensive organizations and stranded assets. um, Any company that's involved heavily in the extraction and burning of hydrocarbons is going to see its operating model drop off a cliff in the next couple of years. So they simply can't ignore it anymore. I mean, companies, you know, most of the oil companies have been trying to ignore it systemically and and also trying to obscure climate science in the most egregious ways. They can no longer do that. Um, It's simply not possible for anybody on this planet to ignore this stuff anymore, apart from Donald Trump, I think.
0: Yeah, so he had to come into the conversation at some point.
1: <laughs> I did? guess he did. Well that man's that man's you leave this in, that man's capacity for um, astonishingly self-interested stupidity is, is quite remarkable. <laughs>
0: Yes. Okay. There's a strategic statement <laughs> I've heard one there. Yes. And and I guess in lots of ways, it kind of, I mean, using him as an example, then, mm. um, is one of the ways that um, an organisation, be it large, medium, or small, um, can begin this kind of exploration, this journey. So if they think of mm. this, um, this brave new world, they think then of... Um, talking in a language that makes it commercially viable for them to kind of mm. set out on this journey I think just picking up a few of the points that you've said for me there's almost a consistent theme so correct me if I'm wrong here but it mm. feels like it's the locality debate it's it's keeping things fundamentally local that is going to be possibly the first kind of major if it, if not, say, quick win, that an organisation can have in this whole journey? It's, it, am I right, kind of assuming that from what you've said?
1: Yeah, I think, I think so. Again, I'm unclear that whether you can make generalisations for all sectors in this. So um, there are clearly many businesses that are involved with material stuff, particularly moving material stuff around, and that includes human beings, um, who can get away with not moving that stuff around as much as they do. And that pushes us towards, yeah, smaller regionalised organisations of some kind. And certainly against long and complicated supply chains, you know, in which, um, I don't know. There was was, was one marvellous one I used to use in my lectures, which is something about Scottish fish. So fish, salmon, I think it was, caught off the coast of Scotland, uh, frozen, containerised, sent to Thailand, where labour was cheap for filleting and then frozen again, containerized, and sent back to the UK for distribution across a network of supermarkets, you know, that kind of stuff. That that just can't continue. It's it's, it's not possible for us to do that. Of course, that's based on um, differentials between different sorts of labor markets, and it's not surprising that organizations take advantage of that. The reason they take advantage of it is because effectively they can ignore the carbon cost because containerization has been so cheap. Going back to the kind of the, the, the issue about whether every, everything becomes localised, that I'm not so sure about, you know, I don't know. I think, I think you know, one of the things that the COVID uh, crisis has taught us very quickly is the importance of large scale coordinated action in a variety of ways. And the very fact, say, that you and I are communicating now is uh, is testament to the fact that there are some large organizations that are providing us with solutions that can allow us to do localization in the first place you know the university of bristol currently is functioning in a whole series of bedrooms and home offices around the southwest of england and it can do that because of companies like skype and zoom and so on you know that's that's how that's possible so i don't think we necessarily need to assume that all no, all larger organisations are necessarily bad. It depends what the carbon emissions cost of those kinds of forms of organisation going to be. Yeah,
0: mm. and to me that just sort of sums up beautifully the whole thing that um, I've been uh, banging the drum now uh, for a couple of years with the mindful collective and putting kind right. of purpose and value at the centre of everything. So if we sort of sum up some of the things that we've been talking about here, the mm. the, lo- the location impact has obviously a a big significant factor to play within the whole sustainability um, debate and footprint that an organisation has, whatever size that they are. There's certainly a piece to play in terms of the the people profile. So that's about co-creating value with your supply chain right the way through your supply chain so that you can get best impact, best effect for least possible impact on environment but also on I guess jobs and the whole kind of economy sort of regionally at the same time as maintaining a a sort of a a reasonable economic footprint so the whole kind of profit and reinvestment and kind of sensibility I guess of being a commercial organization comes into that mix Mm. Um, and that coupled with the whole idea of having the right kinds of products and services co-created for the future. So it's mm. kind of, it is product, people, process and profit in kind of almost equal balance and equal measure. And if you mm. can achieve that to develop a, I mean, I mean a, a really kind of core organizational purpose that delivers, that delivers value to everybody you encounter, feels like almost then you've got this almost perfect equation mm. of everything joining up really nicely right across the piece that just makes everybody smile, but also delivers money on the <laughs>
1: <laughs> Again, yeah, yeah that, that sounds to me like dangerous motherhood and apple pie, really. I mean, I, 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 like, I like the way in which you, you kind of point to the different, um, uh, the different factors, if you like, of, of a successful organisation. I don't necessarily think, however, that you can strip the politics out of this stuff and make everybody happy. You know, I, I, I don't think power goes away, essentially and that um, in any business commercial context, you're going to see um, a kind of jockeying for advantage, for relative advantage. The question for me is more, what are the background assumptions that allow those organizations to operate at all? So let's, let's imagine um, the analogy of, um, a, 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 of some kind of sports game or something along those lines you've got a, you know a bunch of actors who are um, a, bu- a bunch of players who are engaging in the game and trying to gain advantage for their side and all that that kind of stuff but behind that there's a set of rules which essentially stops them from doing certain kinds of things stops them from picking up the ball or or, or whatever whatever it is in, in particular ways it seems to me that we need to think about those background assumptions both in terms of regulatory stuff so in other words what organizations are allowed to do at all within the context of um, of the uk legal framework but also in terms of the kind of expectations that we have of organizations and that's where it pushes back to that question of purpose i think you know, do do we assume that an organization is doing something because it um is providing us with a good or service that we really want that we really need and this you know we can we can, we can enact this fairly dramatically by thinking about the difference between say a company like mcdonald's and a company um well i won't name names because it's too much like advertising say a you know a local bristol cafe chain of some kind um but donald's whatever it's in, whatever its credentials is a large multinational organization that's primarily oriented towards providing value for its uh, shareholders it's not particularly interested in making your eye happy you know, i mean that's that's an unintended consequence of its business model but essentially its business model is focused on shareholder value The particular cafe chain I'm thinking of um, recently um, stopped supplying any takeaway cups uh, because they were uh, worried about plastic and so on and they didn't want to be engaging in that kind of stuff anymore. The owner of this particular chain reckons that cost the organization a lot of cash. There was uh, some fairly big sums being mentioned because obviously some people walk in and asking for a takeaway and they were told you can't have one unless you've got your own keep cup. Um, so a lot of, lot of business was walking out the door. But that gave me an enormous amount of faith in that organization. You know, I, 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 I try to go there quite a lot now because I, I feel that that's an organization that's kind of on side with me. Um, and I'd much rather go there than go to McDonald's. So there is a sense in which I think the, the, the question of purpose is a question about how you demonstrate that purpose to other people. And sometimes that might, might involve foregoing opportunities for profitability, um, which otherwise and, you know, any ordinary capitalist business would just grab at. Mm, so there's
0: almost an inevitability. To, to this change I mean because obviously that's a, that's a really good example I don't think there's any problem giving um, the Boston Tea Party a, uh, a shout <laughs> okay. out on this one because <laughs> well done Boston Tea Party Well yeah. done, Boston Tea Party you've done an incredible job uh, in that yeah. and, um, there is actually an interview um, sort of on the uh, Mindful Collective uh, website with the, uh, the chief exec of Boston Tea Party so oh excellent
1: oh I should watch that okay good.
0: Detail, um, about that uh, particular story but it's to me it's a really interesting one because it's almost like the um, the people and you talked before about the kind of you know the adoption curve and people kind of um, going on the uh, the journey and I think it's those organisations who take. The leap of faith that it is totally the right thing to do, to be building that kind of brand equity as they make these decisions, because they know on the other side of taking those hard hits from, you know, from a natural perspective, that there is definitely there's sustainability there. You know, the whole stuff that Mark Carney was talking about, that's almost you you have to do it to survive in the future and I think it's those organizations who have got the will and the desire and the momentum behind them to be able to do that who are going to be the winners in the longer term and I think you know Boston Tea Party is just a, a really great example of an organization who was willing to take the hit for the longer term benefit and I think it's almost that they're really a great example of, of disruption so on the one hand we talked about pivoting the second hand now i think here and now we're talking about disruption and i think to disrupt a, a marketplace by doing things fundamentally differently but adding huge amounts of value and keeping it local because of course there's always the you know the sustainable uh, impact on those decisions i think to me again that's just such a strong equation so if you're doing change, it's all about doing change that really does hit the sector almost between the eyes with the impact that you're making.
1: Mm-hmm. But part of that, again, points to the, the, the fact that, you know, businesses are in competition with another, right? You know, part of your language there is about the idea that this could be, uh, could provide a certain kind of competitive advantage. So I don't think we can ever take that element of competition and power out of the way that business operates the again going back to the point I think the, the question is how we adjust the regulatory environment that's provided by states and, and multi-state solutions too and how we adjust people's assumptions about what businesses should be doing uh, both in terms of questions you know, of purpose but also in terms of consumer preferences of different kind so once once, once that sort of, um, if you like, environmental stuff starts to change, then we can assume that business will start to compete in slightly different ways as well. It'll still be competing. It'll still look like the kind of business businesses that we have at present in terms of their jockeying for positions within particular marketplaces. It's just that they want to be able to do it without thinking about their carbon externalities in the same way.
0: Mm. So we're talking about change now. I want to give you a bit of an opportunity to um, talk about your view of change, because I know you have a, mm. quite a strong opinion in terms of um, the education, the whole kind of business school management education mm. piece, mm. Um, in terms sure. of how that should, in theory, change. Um, yes, to to yeah, that's right. Yeah. You've actually authored a book um, on the subject. Tell us a little bit more about yeah.
1: that. Yeah, so this was um, a relatively recent book called Shut Down the Business School, and it was a sort of an attempt to um, um, uh, to put together a series of complaints that I've had over the last 20 years or so, really. Um, as I kind of said at the start, I, you know, I'm an outsider to uh, business and management education, so turning up with a whole series of my kind of sociological baggage, if you like, it became... Um, It became increasingly difficult for me not to say something about the way in which I thought business and management education and research was reproducing some very dangerous ideas about the way that uh, business education should be continued. So this book is essentially a kind of compilation of my complaints really. Uh, Well Rhys, the the, the first five chapters are the miserable bits uh, in which I talk about, uh, I, I, I explain what's wrong with management education globally and then the next five chapters are are the lovely bits um, in which I explain what we can do about it and how business education needs to change and the quick just to shorthand the whole argument essentially what I suggest is that the what we should be doing is producing what I call schools for organizing rather than schools for business and because organizing to me is a kind of a, a generous and general term for all sorts of ways in which human beings can come together with each other and various technologies and the natural world in order to produce different kinds of value. And I think we need to be teaching and understanding those things in a much more holistic way than we do. At the moment, essentially business schools, 99% of the time, in 99% of the business schools across the globe, reproduce a set of assumptions about corporate capitalism and essentially, uh, capital finance. And they do this kind of relentlessly, almost, entirely tone-deaf to the way in which the world is changing around them. Um, It seems to me vital now that we start teaching about things like cooperatives and mutuals and local money and localization and every single module we teach, every single course we teach has to make reference to carbon reduction strategies. There's no excuse not to do this anymore. We can't have a separate module, module that does ethics and corporate social responsibility, or you know, something on sustainability somewhere in the curriculum. Everything has to be about this. And the reason it's so important is that you know, business schools educate in this country, in the UK, something like one in seven of the students who are going through universities currently, doing some version of business and management. This is, uh, this is an opportunity to influence the way that people think about business on a, re- on, you know, on a wholesale scale and we should be grasping that stuff instead at the moment business schools are essentially just jockeying for position and selling selling magic fairy dust about the future you know if you look at most business school websites they're they're still basically telling you that if you go to x university um, you will get a better salary than someone who goes somewhere else yeah or that um, they will give you an exciting life and the images that they'll sell will be of you jumping onto planes and uh doing thrilling things <laughs> you know so they did and i just don't think it's responsible to be selling that stuff anymore um so essentially the book argues that what we should be doing is radically redesigning the curriculum also probably redesigning the ways in which universities are reliant so heavily on business school funding because that's you know that's part of the story here One i won't go into today um but effectively well, the metaphor that, I, that, I, that I've used on several occasions is bulldozing the business school and building something else. You know, I don't think this is about um, reform. I think it's about a radical revision of what we think of as education for, um, for organising.
0: This has been such an insightful and fascinating conversation. It really has. I mean, we've touched on so many... You're
1: a very nice interviewer.
0: Well, you're you're a very good interviewee, I have to say, Um, because I think what we've kind of covered is just so many different kind of facets and angles and and things for people to really be thinking about. And... I guess if um, somebody wants to get in in contact um, either with mm. you or find out more about the um, Bristol Inclusive uh, Economy Initiative, kind of where would they go? What, what's the, uh, the comfort
1: so if they Google Martin Parker University of Bristol, they'll find uh, me there. Or if they Google Inclusive Economy Initiative University of Bristol, and they'll find a website web, web page which will take you to me again.
0: Yeah. That's brilliant. So, okay. Professor Martin Parker, thank you very, very much for your time today. And uh, It was a pleasure. Hopefully uh, see you again on a, another recording very, very soon. Look forward to it. OK, thanks very much indeed.